0: Alright, well, last time we were in John, we began to look at what is often referred to the, in the Bible as the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer. It's, uh, it's unique and called that because uh, it's the longest prayer ever recorded in the New Testament by Jesus. And it occurred during the night of the Last Supper, the night before the crucifixion. So, what's great about this prayer for us is not only can we learn how to pray, as we imitate Jesus, but we also gain from his perspective the kind of areas within Christianity that we, that we should pray for. Because as Christ prays us, we get a glimpse into what kind of things that he would desire us to imitate him in. And so we divided the prayer into three sections. And if you remember, we did verses 1 to 5, which is Jesus' prayer for himself. The second section, 6 to 19, where he prays for his disciples. And then from verse 26 to the end, his prayer for, or sorry, verse 20 onward, um, his prayer for other believers, people like you and I. Today, we're just going to look at uh, three verses, verses six to eight, in terms of Christ's prayer for his disciples. And we'll finish the sermon in a couple weeks on the second half of that. So let's uh, turn with me now to verse six and read this together. Uh, It says here, I have manifested your name to the men who... You gave me out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Notice that the disciples are defined by three distinguishing features. Three distinguishing features. One, there were men who were chosen out of the world. Two, they were had their name manifested, um, had God's name manifested to them. And three, they were defined as people who kept uh, God's word. They were obedient to his commands. We're going to first look at... Uh, how these men were described from Jesus in terms of them being chosen. How they were chosen. He says, I have manifested your names to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So the first distinguishing feature about these guys is that they were chosen by Jesus and handpicked individually. Now if you remember um, this occurred three years later or earlier. Uh, Jesus spent all night in prayer on top of a mountain to the Father in order to gain clarity in which 12 men he should select. Remember, Jesus had many disciples. He didn't just have 12, he had many. And he, but he chose 12 to be within his specific uh, close, intimate group who later became apostles. Now this was an important decision considering the role they were going to play in the future. They were going to be uh, the leaders of the church. But I want to talk about how significant it was in terms of how, like, when, after he chose them, how he prepared these men for ministry. How did he prepare them? Look at verse, uh, Mark chapter 3 uh, on the PowerPoint here in verse 13. He says, but now God has shown us a... Wait, oh, wait a minute. How did that get... Uh, oh, I know what happened there. Uh, my PowerPoint got, uh, during my thing, it shut down on me and I had to restart the computer and it went to my old uh, <laughs> file. Okay, well then I'll <laughs> take at Mark 3 in my Bible. Very interesting. All right. See, and you hit 6. It asked me to open the recovered file, and I should have said no. I'll read you Mark three thirteen. He says this, And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and summoned those who he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach. You notice something significant there? Notice he didn't choose them. And then abandon them. He didn't say, I'm choosing you guys. I'll catch you once a week. I'll see you Saturday morning at the temple. And I'll teach you there. right?" Or I'll see you Saturday morning at the temple. And I'll hit you, I'll hit you up for like a. Like maybe lunch on like a Wednesday. Or something like that. The, Jesus said he wanted to be with them. He wanted to invest his life into these men. Before he sent them out. In other words, he wanted to eat with them. He wanted to do ministry with them and, and sleep in certain homes with them. He wanted to laugh with them, he wanted to cry with them, he wanted to work through trials and shape their character. And the only way he could do this is if he relationally invested his life into those people. And I think that's a huge lesson for us because we begin to see what discipleship truly is. Discipleship is not a program. It's not a six week program where you can come and learn to, how to disciple people. Although I guess it could include that, but it's not the primary way Jesus defines it. Discipleship is a relational investment of one person's life into another. And that's one of the key pillars of Genesis House. One of our key pillars in our church is relational discipleship, where we do life together, invest our lives into one another's lives, in order to teach people the way of Jesus' implications and applications uh, for the Christian life. So this is what discipleship truly is. And we gain that model from Christ. So that was the first distinguishing feature. That Jesus handpicked these men for ministry, they were chosen. And we see that again in John 17, 6. The second distinguishing feature though, is that these men had the privilege of having God's name manifested to them. And that's something that nobody else in Israel had the opportunity for, to the same degree. Yes, people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus definitely had uh, revelations about who God was more than others. But these 12, because they lived with Jesus and and were involved in his life for three years, got to hear things and experience things that no one else got to see and hear. So he manifested God's name to them. So the word manifest means to reveal, to reveal or make known. So the natural question then is, well, how did he do this? How did Jesus make known or reveal God's name to these men? Well, Jesus made it clear over and over, which we've seen in John so far, that he was God in flesh. We call it in the Christian terms the incarnation, right? God in the flesh. So here's Jesus in the flesh living with these guys so when everything, every word he spoke was a revelation of who God was. He manifested God's name. Every action he did, the choices he made in life and the miracles he chose to do was a manifestation of God. So when Jesus spoke he, and did actions, he was not a rogue teacher independent of God. He was a complete mirror image of God. Yeah, verses seven and eight pick this up, actually. He's, or he says, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And they received them, right? So he's saying, the words that the Father gave me, I've given to you. So I've made God's name known to you through the words which I spoke. And again, he did so in action as well. I love John 14, 8 to 11. We covered this, but it's worth looking at again. Uh, John 14, 11 so Philip comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. So show us God, show us, show us Him in a way that would be unexpected, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? How, who has, he who has seen me has seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? Now listen to this. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. So he switches from words to works. So again, he's saying, i am revealed God to you, Philip. You're asking for God? I'm right here. I've spoken these words. I've done these things. You don't need to see the Father. You've seen him in me. And this is what he's saying to the disciples in his prayer. Or to his Father. He's like, Father, in my prayer, about my these men I have made them, made you known to them through the words and the actions I've done. Now the third distinguishing feature, and I think for me personally, what I find the most interesting and significant, and where we're going to spend the majority of our time and time the lessons today, is notice that Jesus recognized these men as people who have kept his word. You see that in verse 6? And they have kept your word. You know, Dan and I, in our preparations, we often ask this question. It's a good question for you in your Bible studies, um, in your devotional life, or in your Monday or Tuesday night groups. Ask yourself this question. What surprised you most in the text? As you're reading along, what, started, what stuck, struck you as like strange or, or, or kind of weird that you weren't expecting? It's a great question because often the lesson is there. Well, when I read this and I said, have they kept your word, that struck me as weird. Really? These men kept his word? Really? In Luke 9, the men who wanted to call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans to strike them dead because the Samaritans wouldn't welcome Jesus into their town? They were word keepers? How about, the, how about um, in Matthew 20, when they wanted seats of prominence beside Jesus because they did they wanted to be in positions of power and they were arrogant and prideful, they had to go get their mommy to ask Jesus if they could have this, the left uh, seats on their right and left hand. They, they, they literally got their mother to go and say, hey Jesus, uh, can my son sit on your right and left hand? I mean, come on, like grow up. How about in Matthew 19 when children come to Jesus for prayer and laying on of hands and the disciples say, no way, Jose, don't even come close to our rabbi. The children aren't permitted in front of my, uh, in, in front of my teacher. How about John 13, the same night, when no one would get up off off uh, the supper table at at the Last Supper to take the role of a servant to wash anybody's feet, despite Jesus repeating teachings to uh, be a servant. These men, according to Jesus, have kept his word. Well, we learned something very important here as a church. You see, in terms of how Jesus evaluates believers, he's not evaluating them and us based on sinful choices that we make at random points in our walk with Christ. He's viewing us and evaluating us by our overall commitment to him, our overall life commitment to him. If these men are considered word keepers, and yet I've just named all the texts in which they broke his word... And he says, they've kept your word. Clearly, Jesus has a very important measuring stick for how he evaluates faith. Now, while these men had made very poor decisions at times, Jesus was evaluating them on what they were known for. What they were known for. And the New Testament describes a person in terms of what they're known for by the word practice. The word practice. People can either practice a life of unrighteousness or practice a life of righteousness according to scripture. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit To acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, that's an interesting one, Um, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinances of God, those who practice such things are not are, are, sorry are worthy of death those who practice such things what they are known for what they are known for flip over a couple um, uh, books to Galatians chapter 5 verse 19 Galatians 519. But if you are led by the Spirit, so, oh, I'll start at 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I pre-warn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things are, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next verse. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. So you can practice these other categories of life. Or you can be known as one who practices love, patience, joy, peace, self-control, and those other kind of things. You can be known for one or the other. You see, God's evaluation of us is not based on sins that we randomly commit but on what our walk is known for. It's how we practice our Christian life. That's why he can turn to the disciples and say, you have been word keepers, even though they've had moments of pretty poor decision making in relationship to God. Now for some of us in here, um, this should come as great encouragement. And for some of us, this might produce a healthy fear. Okay, I don't know where all of us are at, right? I, I'm not sure. I mean, so. But this is this is a great encouragement and perhaps a moment of sort of anxiousness and fear. Let me speak about why it's a encouragement. Many of you, maybe at times, maybe even now, have struggled with assurance. Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Like, what does God think of me? Because I know what i you know, I know about this and this and that and the other. Take comfort in this that Jesus evaluates you like He does the disciples. He recognizes that you're not going to be perfect in the way you live a Christian life out, but he can still consider you obedient if your practice of life is a commitment to him. And all of us who've committed our life to Christ, unfortunately, are going to find ourselves still in sinful situations. We're going to continue to experience failure and living out God's standards. And some of these things will be of little significance in how the impact is and consequences, and other things will be great in terms of their consequence. But when you understand God evaluates you by your practice, this should give you peace. He gives you peace. See, what God requires in daily living is that if you do sin, you confess your sin. If you confess your sin, He's faithful and does to forgive you of your sin. After confession, you repent. In other words, you you do not go back to that way of life any longer. And you give thanks to God for His forgiveness of you. So we operate under God's grace. However, if we find ourselves in a, in a pattern of practice right now as a, as a, of sinful choices in these areas that I just mentioned from Galatians and Romans, it comes with a severe warning. He's saying your spiritual life is in danger. This is true for the Christian as well as the non Christian in this passage. He's speaking to the Christian church in this context, and he's warning them. He's saying, if you, can you continue as a practice, make this what your life is known for, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the awesome news. God's love is so big, so big, if you confess and repent the same way as you were um, when you're not practicing a life of sin, but if you confess and repent, He can forgive you even for those things and wipe your slate clean as well. Now I find that my own life at times, in the past, I should say, not so much now, but in the past, and I find other people in the Christian faith who happen to be in a practice of sinful life patterns, we often think, this is the condemnation part of our, of our lives, where they think, well, I can't be forgiven for what I've done. I'm unforgivable. There's no way anyone's been as worse as me. God could never forgive me for what I've done. Let me share with you an incredible story from the life of David. The life of David. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. So the context is this. David normally goes to war, uh, you know, goes out to battle. He decides to stay home this year. He's idle, sitting in this you know, this temple or in his like you know, king's palace, and he's kind of idle. He notices Bathsheba bathing and over the days of watching her bathe and stuff like that, and, and you know having sort of think, starting daydreaming about being with her, he takes her to commit adultery. So he sleeps with her, he gets her pregnant. He asks, uh, he he knows she gets pregnant, and so he tries to cover it and mask it. So what he does is, her husband is Uriah, and Uriah happens to be one of David's right-hand men in terms of leading the military. So he tells Uriah to come off the battlefield to come home so that he can go with Bathsheba. So if he sleeps with her, and they have a baby uh, nine months later, uh, the good thing is everyone will think it's Uriah's baby because... uh, He went home from war to be with his wife and go back on the field. Uriah is so faithful to David, he won't won't leave the battlefield. And David tries to manipulate him to go on the battlefield, he won't. So what does David do? He sends Uriah to the front lines where he knows he's going to get killed. And sure enough, he goes to war and he's killed right away. So he's taken Bathsheba in in an adulterous relationship. He's tried to mask it, cover it up. Then he's guilty of murder. Of Uriah what's really cool is this: David comes clean before God, he confesses his sin and repents. There's never a time in the scripture do you ever see David um, uh, taking uh, like a, uh, like a wife like that in, in any other way where he forces his way into like a woman's life that way listen to God's description of David in chapter three verse three. Now, this is a description beginning here with a description of Solomon's love for God. So Solomon is a, a come king. And this is, a, this is Solomon, uh, this is the author's understanding of who Solomon is in 3.3. It says, Now Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David. He loved the Lord walking in the statutes of his father David. It's a comparison. The, the Solomon loves the Lord just like david did who walked in the statutes what do you mean he walked in the statutes i thought he committed adultery i thought he murdered somebody yeah but his overall practice of his life was a command committed to god and he's described as a man who loves the lord in this passage look at 3 6. i like this because god has appeared to solomon in a dream and he tells solomon to ask for whatever he wants as king of israel and he begins his prayer. So Solomon begins his prayer his prayer, with a reminder of God's view of his father, David. So when, when God asks Solomon, what do you want? Solomon says, I'm going to remind you first about your relationship with my dad before I ask for my request. Look at 3.6. He says, Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant, David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you've reserved for him this great loving kindness. And you've given him a son to sit on the throne as it's to this day. He's defined as a man who walked. Walked in uprightness of heart towards God. Um, an adult or a murderer. Because his overall life is, as a practice was committed to the Lord. Forgiven. Because of his confession and repentance. One more. Chapter 3 verse 13. Solomon has already, so Solomon has come to the Lord and he requests wisdom. He requests, he's requested wisdom from the Lord. So what's God's response to after he requests wisdom? Verse 13, um, I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will be not be any among the kings like you all your days. Now if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I'll prolong your days. Okay. Mike, here's the thing, I'll give you riches and honor and I'll give you a kingdom that will last forever you know in terms of like your natural life it'll be an awesome time as king if you walk like your dad did if you walk like your dad did see that's the thing, David was not known as a man like this he had a really bad nine months he had a really bad year in terms of sin but he wasn't a practice that's why Nathan the prophet had to come to warn him and say, Listen, you cannot continue like this if you do your, your dead man. And David was broken and he confessed and came clean. It's an amazing picture. It's an amazing picture. For anyone who thinks they've ever condemning themselves over sin, if 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 you you know, even if you've committed adultery and murder, you can be forgiven. David is described as a man of uprightness and heart and loving kindness towards God. It's a beautiful picture of his amazing love. He's not kidding when he says in Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove all our sins from us. That's not a hypothetical statement. That's a true statement from a loving God. There's nothing he can't and won't forgive. But it's up to us to come clean in confession and repentance. I do want to say one more thing, though, before I move on. I don't want us to I wanted to clear up something. At the same time as God is extremely gracious and can forgive to this degree, I don't want us to take the attitude that we can take advantage of God's grace. Okay, so okay. So, I get it. So he doesn't evaluate me by perfection. He evaluates me by love commitment. That means if, he, if, he, if I sin here and there, I can take advantage of his grace and just go for it, right? Well, of course not. Paul dealt with this in the Roman, in the Roman uh, church. The Roman church, he was teaching the Jews there that they thought that if they were law observers, if they observed the law of Moses, that they'd be saved. And he's come along and says, no, the law never, could never save you, never save you. And in a Jewish term, that'd be good works, right? You can't be saved by this. It's only by God's grace. He has to rescue you from your sin. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. He has to save you. So then the natural question that the church would say then, well, if it's all about grace and not about me doing anything in terms of the law, then I should be able to sin whenever I want then, right? it's all about grace. And Paul says, no, 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 you've misunderstood if you go that way. He said this in Romans 6, 1 to 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? How did we die to sin? When Jesus Christ died for our sins... As, as a payment for our sins, we then die to ourselves daily in terms of our, our, for our desires to sin in terms of our other relationship and towards God. Because God Jesus died for us, we die to ourselves in terms of trying to honor Him with our lives. So this is not, this whole thing about taking advantage of God's grace is the wrong attitude. If, so people, I've, I've had this experience in my life, and you may have too. You know when people sometimes ask the question, well, how far can I go in my Christian walk before God kind of like thinks it's too far? Like how far can I, it's all about grace, how far can I sin before God says okay that's enough? My question back to that person is, or my statement I should say is, if you're thinking that way you're in a lot of danger. Your mindset towards Christ is, and that's a, a bigger issue going on, you have a hard issue going on between understanding what salvation is, you've missed the point of the relationship why would you ask anybody that loves you and that you love how far you can go before you can sin against them before they get upset with you? Right? Think about this as a parent, right? What, well, how disappointed would you be as a child if your son or your daughter or walked up to you and said this, Dad, Mom, I have a question. I'm just curious. Like, I know you unconditionally love me, I can tell, but how far do I have to sin against you before you kind of get up hurt by me? You'd be like, what are you asking that question for? What's gone wrong in our relationship that you're even considering that question? Right? Imagine a spouse, the same thing. Honey, how far can I go in terms of like sitting against you before you'll actually take notice and be hurt? Like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you, like, as a spouse and as a parent, you expect perfection, don't you? You would like your relationship with your child and your spouse to be this. They never hurt me and everything in their heart is set against never hurting me. That's what God wants. He wants perfection from us. He wants in, in, the, in terms of full obedience. Now he knows that we, we're never going to fully achieve that. And that's where his grace comes in. But our heart attitude towards him is bent. Is bent towards wanting to obey him. There's no biblical limit to obedience to Christ. <laughs> we need to be all in. But his grace thankfully covers us when we, when we make our mistakes. But we don't take advantage of that grace just like you in your marriage or in your parenting, don't want partial obedience. You want a full heart commitment so does our loving God. So the disciples were known then as Jesus, by Jesus who, as men who had kept God's word. And we kind of get a glimpse into seven and eight. Why? See, it all had to do with what they believed about Jesus. Let's go back to John 17 and look at verse seven. It says now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you have gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. See what had influenced the disciples' decision to be word keepers was what they had come to believe about Jesus. See they believed that his words were of heavenly origin, and they believed that he was of heavenly origin. In other words, in the Jewish context, what did they believe? If you, if you believed somebody had words from heaven and their origin was heaven, you understood that they were the Messiah. That you were waiting for a Messiah who was God's spokesperson, who was God's representative, who was God's son. So they were, they were by declaration, uh, knowing that what he had spoken had come from heaven and that he come from heaven saying, we believe you are the Messiah. He was God's son sent to redeem Israel. So while it's true, they didn't have the full implications in terms of understanding of what that meant, up to this point, they had embraced all they had known about Jesus and that had influenced the way they lived. It had influenced the way he lived. they lived. Now there's a massive lesson there for us as well. You see, how we understand who Jesus is is going to dictate how we live as well. Your understanding of Jesus Christ will dictate how you live. If you think he's only a great teacher, if that's as far as he goes, he's a great teacher, then that's not going to influence your life very far because he's only a teacher to you, but he's no more than that. So he could go. You know, Oprah's a good teacher, Dr. Phil's a good teacher, Muhammad's a good teacher, Buddha was a good teacher, and Jesus is a good teacher. So we're all. You know, they all have. Everyone's got some words of wisdom. So that's as far as he goes. That's not going to change your life. Right? If you think about, let's say you believe him to be the savior, but you think about him always being a, a God who only exercises grace. You're also not going kind to of have a fruitful life, because you'll have no healthy fear of him. Because <laughs> you'll be like, well, I can do whatever I want, because grace will cover it. Well, again, what you believe about Jesus will dictate how you live. If you think, though, he's the creator of the universe, he's the one who put a soul in you, the day that that sperm and that uh, egg united and he put a soul in you to give you a living identity and a living being, and you believe that he came to save you from sin to the point that you have nothing to offer God without him, that'll change the way you live in terms of your service to him. It'll change, if you understand him more, how to operate in your parenting. It'll change your mindset how to operate in your marriage. It will change your mindset how to operate in finances. In dealing with anger and so on and so forth. Forgiveness. You see, the more you become conformed to the image of Christ, the more these areas will change in your life. The more you become more like Christ in his in terms of his image, the more this will affect the way you live out your behavior. And this is called the process of sanctification. Uh, we're going to come to this next sermon. Verse 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. The key here is that sanctification is a process of maturity. It's a process. And there's lots of examples in the Bible of different levels of faith. Different levels of faith. Can I give you a couple? Um, In Hebrews 5.11, he says this. You guys in this church should be on meat by now. But you're still drinking milk like a baby you know he's speaking to the person in the church who's been going for years who's been a Christian for a long time who's still very much infant in their faith he's saying I had an expectation of you you were you became Christian you're a baby in understanding years have gone by and you're still a baby but they're not saying you're not Christian he's just saying there's there's been no maturity and you need to become meat eaters right that's one level another level Paul, in Philippians 4.9, he says, I want you to be imitators of me in my life in terms of how I've lived out my Christian life. What's he saying to the Philippian church? You can still get grow in your faith. That's, you think that's a pretty conceited statement for Paul to make, be imitators of me, but look at the guy. It's not a boastful statement, it's a true statement. He's like, I'm mature, I've modeled the Christian life, you can copy my life. You've got, you've got a place to go yet. It's not that the Philippians aren't Christians, but they have to mature. um, 1 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 1. And I'll just read this to you. He says this here. "Uh, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it indeed even now you are not able for you are still fleshly again these Corinthians are still being treated like babies but he, but he, um, he doesn't want that to continue that way again it's not that they're not Christians but there's different levels of maturity but again the, to the degree that they understand who Jesus is is dictating how they're living out their lives in terms of how they're to commit themselves and there's this, this expectation from Christ that we're to mature and the more we become like him the more we, it'll change in how we, in how we live out our lives. And that's why I love this verse in verse, in verse 8, right? He says, uh, uh, or actually, well, verse 7 and 8, like he says, they've come to believe that my words have come from you and that you've sent me. And, and that's influenced the fact that they've kept his word. They've kept his word. But you can see the sin in their life because they still have a lot of growing to do as well. But when Pentecost comes and Acts and the spirit falls upon them, you see a complete shift because they start to get the big picture of the things that have been taught. And that's what faith is for us too. Jesus will promise things in the scripture, he'll declare things in the scripture, but we have to trust him to live out and walk those things out in our lives. And in in hindsight, we'll go, oh my goodness, I know exactly why you told me to do what you did. Because God has, he can see the, the future, he knows the tendencies of people, and we don't. So we have to trust him. So I'll leave you with one question before we do the lessons. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a teacher? Is he, the, is he just all about grace? Or is he the creator? Is he your savior? Is he your redeemer? Because maybe that answer will have a direct correlation as to where you're not, where you're at now in your faith. And so I want to encourage you to say, keep pressing on in terms of growing and maturing so that um, there can be fruit in your life as well to a greater degree than you might even be experiencing at this moment. So I'll leave you with four lessons. One, true discipleship requires a relational investment. True discipleship requires a relational investment. Jesus chose the men to be with him so that he could send them out to preach. Not, I chose them to go out and preach and then once in a while hang out with the guys. He understood that if he was going to make a lifelong change in these men, then they would, he would have to give them his life. And I'm not making fun of anyone because I I understand the importance of this to some degree, but I kind of get frustrated a little bit when people come to me within the Christian community and say, oh, uh, what, uh, I heard you are a discipling church, and then they say, well, what, what material do you use? I'm like, you've missed. as soon as you ask them what material I've used, you've missed the whole point of discipleship. It's not about what material I use, it's about what, how is my investment of, of my life into the people in the church. <laughs> Obviously, the Bible is gonna be forefront, but I mean, you can have all the material in your world if you don't care about people, it's not gonna go very far. If you don't invest your life into them and show them love, it's not going to go very far. So as soon as someone asks me that question, I know they don't understand discipleship. We take our model at Genesis House from Mark chapter 3. Lesson 2. Jesus evaluates genuine faith by what we practice and not random acts of sinful behavior. See, our faith is evaluated by what we're known for, not this random acts of sin that we do here and there. Again, he wants, it's not that, again, Jesus is saying this, I, I, I'm a, I want you to be imperfect. He actually wants us to be perfect. He says, I want you to be, be perfect like my Heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, He, he never asks for partial, disobed, partial obedience. Christ never wants partial obedience, He wants full obedience. There's no biblical limit to how much we can obey. At the same time, though, He understands that we do have sin natures and we do have sinful tendencies, so His grace will cover that. But again, we don't want to take advantage of that grace. We want to treat them like we, the same way we want our kids to treat us, where the heart was bent towards obeying us, and we, we knowing that there's still going to have to be grace shown in that. Lesson three. God can and will forgive any sin, as long as there's genuine confession and repentance. It doesn't matter if you're the person who is not practicing sin. So you're, you have, you're, you're, you're categorized like a disciple as word keepers. As long as you come clean and confess the sin you, you, that you know you did and you repent, you will be forgiven. If you're in a category of life in which you're practicing sin as a practice, again, if you come clean and genuinely repent and confess, you'll be forgiven. David is the marker of that. David's life is incredible in terms of God's definition of who he was in terms of a man. The only thing that prevents us from receiving that is our own stubbornness, our own free will, and our own condemnation of ourselves. But that's what Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Satan does enough condemning of you, and you do enough condemning of yourself. (laughs) He doesn't need to condemn you. You'll do that on your own. He gives you a hope. He gives you hope. And the final lesson: as believers, our understanding of Jesus will ultimately determine how we live out our Christian walk. Right? There are different stages of obedience in Christian in the Christian life. We just read them, right? Hebrews, you know, um, Philippians, Corinthians. There's, there's, you know, you're from infancy to maturity. You can, you can even get up to the level of Paul, where you can imitate him to the degree he he was a, a Christian. That's the hope, right? And ultimately, to be conformed to the image of Christ is the highest standard, right? But again, those of us who have to face, you know, well, we all do. We're not, we can't escape them, but all of us have to face trials and tests. But how we handle those trials and tests will totally depend on who we believe Jesus to be. Do we trust Him of His Word? Do we trust the Scriptures of His Word? That's ultimately the question we have to ask ourselves. And the more we grow in our Christian walk, the more it'll ultimately de- um, shape how we live out our lives and whatever tests we face.